It's now time for Just the Terror with Nick Guerra. Just two clothes. I've had a creepy coworker follow me all the way home. Freaked me the hell out. The worst part of it was that most people didn't believe me. This is a guy who would just stand in the doorway of my cubicle. Enough that I got a rear view mirror from my computer monitor so I could see how long he stands there without saying anything. He did it a lot and would stand for minutes without saying a word, just watching me. Sometimes he would ask me questions like what kind and color of my car I drive, then would say I'm just asking because I thought I saw you the other day. In hindsight, the questions didn't seem so innocuous. So when I looked in the side view mirror of my car when I was about a block away from our apartments and saw his face, I was in shock. I couldn't believe he'd actually gone that far. I was on the phone with my husband and told him what I was seeing. I thought I must be going crazy. I continued on to the apartments while watching him to see if he followed. Sure enough, he followed. Followed me down a street that was merely an entry point for a small neighborhood in my apartment complex. It isn't really used for anything else. And I knew where he lived, so I knew he had no business being there. I turned into the complex, and there he was right behind me. My building was located in a really squirrely part of the entire place, way at the back but in the middle. So he had to drive a circular path to get there, but he was behind me the whole time. I didn't go to my building. I passed the turn to go to it and booked it around to the exit and tore down the street into the neighborhood. I turned around, parked at the end of the street, and watched the exit to see if he would come out. I mean, maybe he was visiting someone who just happened to live there? That's what I kept telling myself. But nope, there he was, pulled right out of the exit and drove towards the direction of where he lived. I told my boss the next day, totally freaked out. She kind of believed me, sounded absurd, but she knew I wouldn't make it up. But no one else in charge believed me. They handled it appropriately at my job and all, but they couldn't really do anything. They could only counsel him on the harassment of watching me work. It scared me, but I wanted him to know I knew and wasn't going to put up with it. Then he approached me and accused me of being rude to him because I had refused to speak to him ever since that day. I responded with, I saw you. He asked, what do you mean? I repeated myself. He just turned and walked away. I've had other situations like this, but this one was just too close. ripped back into the present. My name is Greg and I think I may have time traveled. Quick backstory. My 17 year old niece, Sarah, lives with my wife and I because her parents abandoned her at the age of 13. One day, I had left my house to go to the store. I had just gotten to the store and was walking through the door and I saw Sarah. This was odd because I had just left her at home with my wife. I ran up to her and yelled, Sarah, how did you get here so fast? The young girl turns around to face me and her entire head was blurry. When it cleared up, the person I was looking at was 100% without a doubt my niece, but she was not 17, she was probably in her mid-20s. Confused, I just apologized, I, I thought you were my niece. At that moment, she turned pure white, started crying and hugged me. She just said, Uncle Greg. I asked, who are you? But instead of a name, she muttered softly, you're dead. The entire room went blurry as I heard her say, you've been dead for years. I woke up on the floor just inside of the store, security running towards me asking, are you okay? The greeter said that I tripped. I was shook and confused saying I didn't trip. So the guard offered to look at the security footage. The video shows me walking towards the door 
pick up my speed, raise my hand, and then the next frame, my hand is down and I'm mid-fall. As soon as I hit the floor, I start moving to sit up. It's almost as if the split second I walked through the door, I jumped forward, maybe five years, and they got ripped back. White Hot Walkers On the island of Bega, there lived a famous storyteller who often entertained his tribe, the Sawal. It was customary for the people of the village to bring him gifts in exchange for his eloquent tales. Once, upon being asked what he would like, he requested that each member of the audience bring him the first thing they found while hunting the next day. One of the Bega warriors went fishing for eels. The first thing he caught felt like an eel, but when pulled from the mud, revealed itself to be a spirit god. The warrior set off to present his find to the storyteller, but the spirit god pleaded for his freedom, offering all kinds of gifts in exchange. He was ignored until he offered power over fire, which piqued the warrior's interest. In order to prove the spirit god's promise, a pit was dug and lined with stones. A huge fire burned in the pit until the stones became white with heat. The spirit god leapt onto the stones and told the warrior to follow. He hesitated, finally did, and to his surprise, felt no pain from the heat. He was then told that he could be buried alive for four days in a cannibal oven without being hurt. The warrior neglected to test this, but ever since then, members of the Sawa tribes are able to walk on white hot stones. Quite a trip. My friend and I got an Airbnb to this mountain house in Bloomingburg, New York to go do mushrooms and enjoy the forest. From the outside perspective, the house seemed like a great getaway with even more things to do in the surrounding areas. The Airbnb host was highly rated 4.9 stars with 450 plus glowing reviews about the house and the trails in the state forest across the road. The house was normally 300 a night but was down to 75. It was a spontaneous trip that we threw together within a week, not much forethought. We thought a lot more about what we needed for our shrooms trip and being on hiking trails. This was a grave mistake. I had a bad feeling the night before we left that I couldn't shake but I eventually got to bed. I only slept about four hours but thought to myself in the morning that I was psyching myself out and everything would be fine. We arrived a few hours prior to check in and placed our food in the basement fridge before we headed out onto the trails. The house from the outside looked old but not horrible. We were pleased at the point as the sun was coming out and it looked beautiful. We spoke with a host on the phone about the local area. He sent us a Google Doc with all the trails, how far they were, and some off-trail destinations that he provided images and directions to. He claimed he grew up in the area and was pushing for us to go to this lake four miles down along the state forest border. He also said to us that we may run into some locals and to tell them Brendan sent you and you'll be good. One of the first red flags. I called him and after almost 20 minutes of oversharing about his personal connection to the home, he finally provided me with the map, location, and directions to this lake. We hadn't actually gone inside the main part of the house yet and decided to head on our way there. As we were entering, there was an Asian man parked in the lot by the trailhead. He was old and was sitting on a stool inscribing a parchment with symbols. We didn't think much of it and continued on. First place we found, we sat down. We took our shrooms and tried to mentally prepare. We were looking for the lake for about an hour, but the host directions were misleading and we weren't sure where we were. The images led us to a fork in the trail that lead us into a densely wooded area. He told me on the phone when we reached this point to go left off the main trail for about two miles. 
I knew enough about hiking to know that this is a dumb idea, especially on shrooms. So we turned around and headed back to the beautiful waterfall we saw near the entrance. We spent about an hour there barefoot in the stream that fed into the waterfall. The shrooms kicked in. It was fun, but we both kind of felt like we were being watched. There were ominous undertones. As the sun started to fade, we decided to head back to the house, check in, regroup, and plan the rest of the day. We arrived at the entrance to see the Asian man sitting there like a statue. I was uncomfortable, but decided to be polite and say hello. He slowly turns to me blank-faced, stares at me, and looks back down at his parchment. We both looked at each other like, okay, let's go, and walked over to the house, which was across the street. We entered the house to a high ranch style setup where the front immediately feeds into two staircases, one going up on the right and one going down on the left. As I look down, I see a door leading to what seemed like the ground level with multiple locks on it and said private taped onto it with parchment paper. This was incredibly unnerving and I immediately felt uncomfortable in the home. The air felt strange and heavy. Everything was coated in a layer of dust despite the cleaning lady being in there while we were gone. Once we went up the stairs, to our left, there was a long hallway to our right. The hallway had many doors, some without knobs. It felt like something you would see in a horror movie. The beds were Victorian style, with very old bedding and woodwork. Everything about this place screamed murder house. We decided to go out back into the camping area and think about what we had wanted to do. As we were sitting outside, I began to get an overwhelming feeling that I was being watched. My hair stood up on the back of my neck, and I heard something in the woods about 20 yards away from us. We had seen a deer about 10 minutes prior, and my friend said it was probably that and continued to play music on his speaker to calm down. I tried to calm down, but I couldn't shake this dreadful feeling. I told him to turn it down, took out my hunting knife, and looked around. As I'm looking, I hear more rustling in the woods. At this point, I was thoroughly spooked and told my friend to go get his stuff. I didn't care how high I was, I needed to get out of there immediately. As we were leaving, I realized that the entire ground level windows around the house were blacked out and boarded up. I wasn't sure if somebody was watching us from the house or the woods, but I didn't want to find out. It also occurred to me that the man we saw in the entrance was only about 50 yards away from us. We hastily threw our stuff into the car and pulled off. As I was driving off, the Asian man was no longer sitting on his stool and his car was empty. He had disappeared. Thank God we stuck with our gut and didn't go out to the lake. I was having trouble reading the map on shrooms, but upon later inspection, there was no lake anywhere to be found. Not only this, but we realized many of the reviews on his account were fake and some of the pictures were too. I still wonder who we may have met when we had arrived there. The host told us we may have likely run into people and to make sure that he sent us. Luckily I never found out. Considering we were on shrooms, I tried to reanalyze the situation to see if there were any points where I may have just been having a bad trip. In retrospect, I think my senses were even more heightened to the bad energy of that place and I'm glad I trusted my intuition. Night biking. A few years ago, I decided to try out night mountain biking. Basically, you outfit yourself with a few really freaking bright lights and go mountain biking. It's a hell of a lot of fun, most of the time. The first time I tried it, I decided to go by myself because I didn't want to bother any of my friends to do something that may turn out to be really boring. So I'm cruising along up a local mountain bike trail. Now mind you, this is in the Rockies, so the trails here are steep with lots of switchbacks. Also, there are a number of animals here who would gladly attack you and can kill you. Mountain lions, black bears, grizzly bears, etc, etc. You honestly do have to be careful, especially when you're alone. 
especially tonight as I completely forgot to bring my bear spray. About one third of the way up, I come to a small repose down a slight hill, so I stop for a second to admire the stars. It was all very peaceful. I can hear some crickets and pretty much nothing else. Now, for many people this wouldn't be too creepy, but I'm pretty much by myself, the only human for miles in any direction. In those situations, you always have a heightened sense of fight or flight because there is no help coming for you if something goes wrong. Suddenly, to my left, I hear twigs breaking. I spin my head around, lights attached to my helmet, and I see nothing. My left is basically just a cliff. Okay, so it was just a harmless animal. No harm done, I'll just continue up the trail. However, at this point, my stomach is in knots. So I ride up the trail a bit further, enjoying the nothingness surrounding me. I come to a bit of the trail with lots of switchbacks, one right after another, about every 75 yards or so. As I'm about to reach a switchback, turning to the left, I spy eyes up on a tree in the middle of a trail to my left. They were about six feet off of the ground. I quite literally said to myself, oh, it's gotta be a squirrel, nothing else would be that high up. Nope. I turned the corner of the switchback and freaking 10 meters in front of me is a bull moose. Now, many of you may not think that's super scary, but moose are terrifying. They'll attack you for no reason, and they will tear you to shreds. They are more scary than black bears. I just stopped. I stood there, watched as this moose turns its massive head and body toward me, completely blocking the trail. I could hear my heartbeat in my head, feel it in my hands gripping the handlebars. My feet were firmly planted on the ground. I know where to go. The trail I had just come up was only a few feet behind the moose, and I certainly couldn't go forward. Not to mention that I heard something about a mile down the trail, so I didn't want to go that way. I briefly thought to myself two quick things. One, why did I not bring the, my bear spray? Two, the best way to get away from a moose is to run downhill really fast while weaving in and out of trees. Their antlers will get stuck. So I'm sitting here, 10 meters from a bull moose, staring at each other, his glowing eyes imparting more and more fear every second. My stomach is in even more knots than it was. I was paralyzed with fear. Then he snorted, breathed out really hard. I said to myself, time to leave. Grabbed my back by the top tube between my legs, pointed it downhill, and pedaled as hard and as fast as I could. Now the trails here in the Rockies often have cliffs beside them, and this was no exception. So I was flying down this two foot wide trail in the pitch black, running from a freaking moose with a death cliff to my left. Lovely. Fortunately, that went well. About a mile down the trail, I looked back and no moose was following me, thank goodness. I was riding at a moderate pace, at this point thoroughly freaked out, vowing never to ride in the dark again. I'm heading to the point I stopped on the way up, where I heard the noise the first time. After this point is a small, maybe half a mile uphill, but it's rather steep. I'm fully aware that this last time I rode through this part there was some sort of animal in this area. I'm willing my bike not to get a flat tire or stop for any reason. Then as I crest a small hill about to go up the steep half a mile hill, I see it. At this point I say to myself, you gotta be kidding me. It was not a harmless animal that I heard the first time, it was a black bear. This time it's off to the side of the trail about 15 meters, but I literally have nowhere else to go. There are no more trails, I can't turn around. So I pedaled, I pedaled as hard as I could, up this hill, internally screaming, don't stop, don't stop, you're not tired, don't stop. I kept pedaling and never looked back. As I crested this hill, I was fully aware that I had 2,000 feet descending to do. My heart was pounding out of my chest. My legs were burning more than they have ever burned. My lungs had no more to give. 
Despite riding down the side of the mountain, I felt my heartbeat throughout my entire body the whole way. I could hear it in my ears, feel it in my feet. This trail was also a one-way trail, so this direction was not made to descend. No berms, no nothing. I fall off the edge and I fall down a cliff. Every time I approach a switchback, I dread pulling the brake lever fear that something would catch up to me or shortcut through the trees and attack me from the side. Every time I have to go around the switchback, I sneak a peek back up the hill looking for glowing green eyes following. But I never once slowed down more than enough to keep me from dying. I swore I saw the eyes on the first switchback down the hill. After that, I was afraid to look. I eventually made it to my car. I rode up to it and parked behind it, relative to the trail. I just sat there in the dark with my head on a swivel, waiting for something to attack me. After a few minutes, my heartbeat left my ears and I dismounted my bike. I could barely stand. My chest hurt, my knees were quite literally weak and shaking. My hands weren't steady enough to undo the zipper on my pack to grab my keys and lock the car. I had to force myself to take a few deep breaths just to get the bike on the rack and me in the car. I drove home that night with no radio, no windows, barely moving, just staring forward at the road. Didn't even bother to take my bike off the rack until the next morning. It was the most terrifying thing I've ever experienced. I haven't ridden my bike alone at night in the mountains since then. The Priest and the Rituals This happened in 2016 when I accompanied my paternal uncle to Goddess Vindhyavasini Temple, located in Uttar Pradesh, one of the major Shaktipith seat of the goddess in India. My aunt had been stuck in labor for quite a while and someone suggested that she may have fallen victim to a tantric ritual called Bandha, binding, that causes delay in childbirth. My uncle knew a priest in the temple who was considered to be adept in occult sciences and had reached out to him for help. We met the priest who was dressed in a modest saffron robe and had an air of humbleness around him. I could not even suspect anything that was about to happen in the next few hours. He confirmed that someone had done a Masini Kriya graveyard ritual on my aunt and if not reversed within time, it could end up in miscarriage or even death. We were horrified and could not believe what was being told to us. But he assured she could be saved provided we started the Yagya ceremonial fire and other rituals on time. So on the banks of the river Ganges, he lit a ceremonial fire and asked us to keep putting oblations into the fire when told. The ritual went on for quite a while when the strangest thing I ever experienced in my life happened. Suddenly, scores of subhuman creatures started coming from nowhere and began sitting around us in a circle. I cannot describe exactly how they looked, but all of them were stunted and had deformed legs or hands with pus oozing out of their wounds. They looked very similar to humans. There was something otherworldly about them that I couldn't put my finger upon. Now, my uncle is a very serious and grumpy guy. You know the kind, and with the situation at hand wasn't in a good mood that day. I could see he thought that those creatures were beggars and was about to tell them to bugger off, but the priest, who seemed unfazed by the bizarre situation, put a finger on his lips and gestured him to remain quiet. As the ritual was about to end, the creatures disappeared as strangely as they arrived. After the ritual ended, the priest asked for a bit of time to dispose the residue of the Yagya into the Ganges. Meanwhile, my uncle and I toured the entire temple to find out where those creatures could have gone, but in vain. When the priest returned, I had asked him about what we had just seen. He explained that the spirits that were being used to torment our aunt had arrived to distract us from our ritual. Like humans, they are also attached to the earth 
do not want to cross over. Had any one of us reacted or got up from our place, the ritual would have failed and our aunt would be doomed. This is the reason he gestured us to remain calm. Curiosity arose in my mind and I asked, have you ever seen God? He answered, no, but I've seen the devil. I was bewildered to hear this because, apart from the obvious vision of the devil himself, Satan is predominantly a Christian spirit and the priest was an orthodox Hindu. Moreover, the concept of Satan, Lucifer, Shaitan does not exist in Hinduism. Before I became a priest, I was a Vamachari, left-hand tantric, and had once got a chance to perform a ritual in an abandoned Christian graveyard. The specifics of the ritual are arcane, but you have to write a mantra on a piece of paper and make a wick out of it. The wick is then placed in an oil lamp and set alight. During midnight, 11 rounds of the mantra are to be recited in the graveyard while the wick is burning. Now, these demons do not like anyone trying to gain power over them and will do anything possible to distract from the ritual. Sometimes you'll see maidens wearing diphanous garments strutting around the graveyard and hear their anklets tinkling. At other times you hear the voices of your family screaming for help, babies crying, and other hallucinations. If you sit steadfast, perform the ritual for 21 continuous days and not get distracted, the prince of demons, Satan himself, comes on the last day and begs for the oil left in the lamp. I describe Satan as being extremely hairy with horns, walks with his hands and feet to the ground like an animal. He also makes a ko-ko sound. This part is extremely treacherous since it's a trap laid out by Satan to distract the practitioner. You have to give the oil to Satan after which Satan will tempt you to ask you for anything you want. If at this point you ask for anything, be it riches, women, or what have you, or refuse to give the oil, you are doomed and will have to suffer from lunacy throughout the remainder of your miserable life. The only acceptable request is to ask Satan to leave you alone so you can complete your ritual in peace. Once the ritual is complete, you'll gain the ability to exercise any demon with ease. Suddenly, my uncle's mobile rang. It was the midwife calling to inform that his son had been delivered safely. I wish I could tell you that attacks on my aunt ceased after this event. They didn't. In the years to follow, my uncle would sometimes find pieces of dog bones tightly wrapped and red cloths scattered around the precarious corners of the house. That is another story. Just the two of us. This happened about two years ago. I was so blown away I took notes, told my wife about it, so I still have the notes on my phone. My five-year-old son was pretty typical for his age, always goofing around, never serious, always working some angle to negotiate treats or buying whatever thing was at the top of his list that week. Kids have a selfish worldview, and that's mostly understandable because they haven't matured yet. So when my son asked me to go for a walk, just the two of us, I immediately laughed and thought, okay, what's he gonna ask for? We start walking and I ask, what's on your mind, buddy? He said, nothing really. I just want to have some time to be with you and be peaceful, be out in nature. Wow, okay, this is progress, I thought. Then he said, I want you to know you're the best dad I've ever had. You really do help me and my sister a lot, and you're really very nice, even though we don't usually tell you. So I just wanted to say thank you for everything, that I want to be near you always. By this point, the only reason I wasn't completely crying my eyes out is that I thought it was some kind of joke or lead up to ask for something. This was totally out of character, especially at this age. I managed to croak out something like, 
I'm really glad to hear that, and I love you very much. Then we just enjoyed the rest of the walk. It really felt like, for a moment, I was speaking to a soul who has had several lives. You're the best dad I've ever had, and wanted to speak directly to me instead of play the role of a child. I'm so glad it happened, and it's something I will never forget. Later, he went right back to being the same old goofy kid that I love. Unsolved but not forgotten. It was Christmas 2002. 35 year old Brian Booth had plans to celebrate with his family. On Christmas Eve, he went to work before finishing his Christmas shopping. After buying his niece's presents, he stopped by Rite Aid and the dollar store. After wrapping the presents in his apartment, he checked in with his mom to confirm again for Christmas dinner the next day at 2 p.m., going out for drinks afterwards. His evening started at the Phoenix in East Village at around 6.15 p.m. He was then seen at the Wonder Bar. Later, he ended up at the Cock, his final stop. It was a place you would go at the end of the night if you wanted to pick up a date, according to his best friend. He was very sure Brian had met someone at the bar. He left around 1 a.m., according to witnesses. No one saw Brian come home, and no one had noticed him leaving the cock alone. Brian had failed to show up for the family dinner as 2 p.m. Christmas Day came and went. His family was concerned as this seemed out of character. Brian was usually early. They attempted to call him, but there was no response. There were no signs of a struggle, and his door was locked. In his apartment, there were three beer bottles on the kitchen counter. Brian still had drink tokens in his pocket. His laptop and phones were gone. However, his wallet, which held $160, was still on his dresser. Brian had been stabbed. The murder weapon, a kitchen knife, was discovered in a bag with the Christmas presents. According to the medical examiner, the knife entered the left side of his neck, lacerating his trachea, esophagus, and right lung. His tox screen showed no signs of narcotics, and his blood alcohol level was around 0.05. Brian had spoken to two unknown men multiple times in the weeks leading up to his death. The police claimed to have found these men and interviewed them. They claimed that the men were not suspects. A news outlet tried to reach out to the two men. One said he met Brian in a bar, and the two exchanged emails and phone calls. They did not see each other after that. The other man never responded. On December 27th, the headline of a New York Post report read, Police Suspect Village Suicide, Citing Unnamed Police Sources. Booth may have taken his own life, said unnamed authorities, according to the Daily News. These authorities were also quoted by television reporters saying that it was a possible suicide. It is worth noting that Brian's brother, Tommy, had committed suicide just three months prior by pumping carbon monoxide into his car. New York newspapers, possibly the police, thought there must be a connection. It had to be suicide. This gay man was alone on Christmas Eve and his brother had recently committed suicide. However, Brian had not spoken to his brother in years. None of his family members had. By all accounts, Brian seemed happier than ever. He had plans to visit his family for Christmas the next day, finding enjoyment in showering his young nephew and godson with a gift of toys. Brian was gleeful while describing the soon-to-be arrival of his brother's baby girl Cassidy, according to his friend Lisa Steinberg, who had lunch with him the day before his death. Christmas cards to his family were full of hope for the next year. Brian seemed to have been having the time of his life, at least to everyone who knew him. His mother, Kay Booth, said, Anyone he touched remembered him. It's a shame whoever did this to snuff him out, because he loved his life. He loved the city. I used to live in the city, and I kept telling him, Times are different. 
and he would say, Oh, Ma, people are out at all hours. The family was eager to get an investigation going, put up a reward, involve crime stoppers. The NYPD, however, unofficially classified Brian's death as a suicide. Detective Walter Burns, NYPD Deputy Commissioner and Public Information Spokesperson states, We can't put up a reward if the medical examiner hasn't declared it a homicide. In the middle of April, many months after his death, Dr. Christopher Happy of the medical examiner's office finally declared the death a homicide. The family got their wanted posters by mid-May. Donna Kukura, his sister, was sitting down for dinner around 5.30 p.m. on January 20th when her phone rang. Brian's cell phone number was listed on the caller ID. She answered, but no one was there. Four and a half hours later, it rang again, and this time there were voices. It sounded like two Hispanic men. They were saying, where's Brian? And they sounded like they were drunk at a bar, she recalled. The police told her that there had been no activity on the phone. However, an examination of the bill reveals that someone attempted to retrieve calls from the voicemail. The phone was also used to call Brian's mother's house. The family continues to pay the monthly bill just in case they get another call. The family was swamped with so many flowers for his funeral that they had to order an extra car to hold them all. Donna recalled, everyone said the same thing about Brian. He was my best friend. I said to my husband, he's got a lot of best friends. Brian's niece, whom he had been looking forward to seeing, was born on February 13th. They did not name her Cassidy. Instead, she was named Brianna. Cigarettes in the Mist. Here's a ghost story that has become popular among the students of Dev Bumi Institute of Technology, Derodan, about a night that a group of them can't forget. To be really honest, where the college stands is a bizarre place to open a college. Surrounded by forests, the land of animals, and the unknown, who aren't afraid to saunter into their realm, proving their dominion whenever required. There have been cases of plenty of animal attacks and of unknown creatures lurking in the woods that the place has started harboring rumors galore. But that doesn't stop the brave from venturing out on adventures. So, there's this area called Surwala, where seven students had found their regular abode. Not just for the thrill of adventure, but also to satiate their late night hunger urges. A daba that served all those night owls who weren't happy with their cooks. The precinct's regulars were students, primarily why it kept its engines running even at night. Their business was booming, so why stop the happy hours, eh? All the kids were highly stoned as Jitu had scored some reefer from somewhere. They sneaked out like they always did, and then dangled on the road once they were a safe distance from the college. Then they sang songs, made fun of each other, and talked about girls as they headed straight towards their favorite Surwala Daba. The journey felt like it was written in some kind of dream. They barely had any memory of how they traveled seven kilometers to reach the Daba without getting tired. Reefer makes you hungry, and the hunger was right at its peak. The boys gorged on every food item the Daba had. One said after finishing his meal, I'm gonna order chicken tikka for dessert. Someone responded, you had that yesterday too. And it was good, slapped back the first guy. Soon they were all very full and hit the road once again to return to their college. The night shone brightly on account of a full moon that saw the kids through narrow, unfrequented pathways. On both sides of the road were plants and trees beyond which expanded a dense forest. Soon, 
Believer's Church showed up with a glimmer of dim light coming from inside. It's right after you passed it that the pathway becomes narrower. Trees became closer to you when you're walking on the road, and the environment becomes kind of creepy. Somebody in the group noticed the sudden darkness around and kicked in the conversation about scary things in the dark. The bold one reassured that there were seven of them. Were there a problem? It wouldn't be hard for them to handle. Scary thoughts began to surface one by one, and thus began ghost stories that thrilled them beyond limit given the place they were and not to mention the state they were in. As the stories continued, a fog began developing some hundred meters ahead of them on the road. Nobody was paying attention until someone pointed out the fog. Hey, where did that come from? The rest of them were surprised too. Just when everyone looked at the white mist ahead, a matchstick burnt midair. There was nothing around it. Just the fire from the matchstick burning bright and hanging there like in some kind of weird dream. Two cigarettes followed, obstructing the flame. The red became prominent and distinguishable. A puff or two were taken as the matchstick lost its light. Both cigarettes stood there as if looking in their direction. The boys kept moving, whispering under the breath. One asked, can you see it? Another asked, yes, what should we do? Someone responded under his breath, keep going. One of the cigarettes then moved towards the edge of the road. The other one stood there, puffing. The smoke appeared, and since the students smoked themselves, it was easily recognizable. Whatever it was, wasn't afraid of the group of seven college boys coming in their direction. Suddenly, when they were some 20 meters left to cover, they saw the cigarette falling to the ground, its cinders releasing sparks in all directions in the process. Then there was silence. The mist didn't go anywhere. The strong scent of cigarettes hung there in the air as they drew themselves closer to the spot where the cigarette was last seen. As they were crossing the spot, one of them noticed a man sitting by the edge of the road towards the light. There's no head, but there was smoke coming out from the place where there was supposed to be a head. One boy whispered under his breath, can you see it? Another whispered back, yeah, shh, keep walking. Someone advised, ignore it, don't look at it. There's smoke coming out of his head, another one chimed in. Shh, don't. Everyone had seen it except one. The boy who failed to see it and had no clue where it was blurted it out loudly, where, where, I want to see it too. As he turned around to check on it, it was too much for the rest of them, and they stormed off. They didn't stop until they saw their college entrance, when one of them confirmed if everyone was there, that nobody was left behind. They were all there. All seven of them sneaked back in, and then assembled in a room where they began discussing what they had seen. They were shuddering with fear. Everyone's story checked out. Everyone had seen the same thing. That was weird. Their desperate talk slithered into the dawn as they fell to sleep that unfortunate night. Thank you for listening to Just the Terror with Nick Guerra. Make sure to check out True Scary Stories with Edie on Tuesdays. Give it five stars and stay scared, uglies. <laughs>